1: Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so, that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So, you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. All right. Welcome everyone back to another edition of New Books in Education. This is your host, Ryan Allen, and today I'm excited to bring us a book that comes from not sort of the uh, ivory tower of academia, but somebody outside of academia, but has a really great insight to, I think, what's going on in higher education, what's going on in um, all of education, really. So I have Ryan Craig, who's Managing Director of University Ventures, and this is his book, College Disrupted, The Great Unbundling of Higher Education. And this was just published this year from uh, Palgrave Macmillan uh, with Saint Martin's Press. Uh, Ryan, thank you for uh, joining me today. Ryan,
0: it's a delight uh, to be here, and I hope uh, that the uh, the insights are great. I was I was recently introduced at, at a conference as the most insightful uh, investor uh, in higher education, and to which I responded, uh, "That's like being called the, the tallest midget." <laughs> uh, so not a not a high bar, perhaps.
1: No, I think it's great to have. Uh, it's, we don't just have professors that have insights in, in education, I think. So uh, this is great for, for the for sure. Um, if we could, maybe just give us a little bit of your background and how you got into education. I know that plays right a factor into the book and kind of ties in as well. So if you want to let our audience know. Yeah,
0: happy to. So I'm from Canada originally. Uh, got into, uh, into Yale um, when I was applying to university and i was fortunate enough uh, that my grandparents were able to help uh, me pay for that and it really opened up just a, an entirely uh, different world uh, to me in, in canada uh you know you fill out one form and rank your uh rank your universities and you just you know you find out uh, you know where you're where you're going uh here it's uh it's a real thing <laughs> it's a, it's a it's a process and and that opened up my uh, my eyes and so my senior year uh, at Yale uh, for my economics uh, major, I did my thesis comparing the um, undergraduate uh, systems of Canada and the U.S. and, and doing sort of an econometric uh, uh, analysis, trying to correlate whether there was a difference in, in the two systems into, as to how they produced, uh, uh, in terms of their, 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 their inputs on a per-institution basis versus their uh, outputs. and. Uh, it was a really interesting paper. Got some media coverage. Actually won a prize, and that was sort of what uh, you know spawned the, uh, the the bug and love of uh, of education. Uh, a few years uh, later, uh, while I was in law school, uh, I connected up with a, a gentleman who was doing some work for uh, NBC. Uh, a Gentleman by the name of Peter Price, and uh, he was trying to develop some new businesses for NBC. This was in the uh, sort of uh, go uh, .dot com uh, era and uh, a plan uh, was hatched uh, for NBC to partner with Columbia and Cambridge Universities to uh, create something called the World University. This was uh, 1998, uh, I believe, (laughs) so sort of uh, pre uh, the era of the uh, the online uh, university. Uh, Didn't happen, uh, but Columbia got the bug, and so after I graduated from law school in 1999, went to work uh, for uh, Mike Crow now the president of ASU, uh, who was then executive vice provost at Columbia, helping Columbia develop a, an online uh, initiative that became uh, fathom. And so spent two years really thinking about what universities could be doing online, should be doing online, what they shouldn't be doing online. Uh, and went from there to, uh, Warburg Pincus, the large private equity firm where I essentially created their education and training, uh, group. And in the process, uh, uh, Co-founded a company that became Bridgepoint uh, Education, which uh, at its peak was 90,000 students almost entirely online, one of the fastest growing universities in U.S. history. And I've been on, on the board of Bridgepoint uh, since, its, uh, since its inception. So I've been involved since then with um, many different uh, education companies and ventures and currently now run a fund called University Ventures, which is the only private equity fund solely focused on investing in higher education. So we invest in companies that partner with traditional universities to help them do things they otherwise couldn't do uh, or don't want to do or aren't good at. So our companies bring uh, capital, uh, technology management and innovation and partner with universities to help them uh, develop uh, and deliver higher return on investment programs for uh, students. So that's, uh, in a nutshell, my story.
1: Yeah, fantastic. Well, I think a lot of that experience you can see right in the book, all the way up from sort of your decision to go to Yale, sort of your working experience, uh, you have a great story in there about uh, being, I believe, a waiter and having these dreams at night, which I was a waiter in college as well, and I, I've said yes, absolutely, I'm shaking my head yes. Um, but can we kind of talk about, I mean, this is really sort of a, uh, a criticism of the current sort of higher education system that we have here. Uh, what what exactly uh, is this disruption and sort of, um, I think you you present these four R's, which is which is really great, Uh, Rankings, research, real estate, and raw. So uh, I think it's a nice way to kind of set us up. Can you can you describe what those are and why they're important to universities? Um, Maybe why those things shouldn't be important potentially.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's an interesting time because as we speak, we're just a few days uh, uh, past uh, the Department of Education's uh, release of uh, the first income data that's been correlated to financial aid uh, data, which really is going to be it does provide um, outcome. Uh, data uh, for the first time, we know uh, at least uh, with regard to students who took out federal loans, uh, how much uh, your graduates or your former students are actually making uh, in the workforce ten years uh, ten years out of school. Really interesting and a, a far cry uh, from uh, the the the, uh, uh, the criteria that uh, U.S. News and the other uh, you know so-called rankings uh, use. They're almost entirely inputs, right? So they're ranking um, reputation, uh, they're ranking selectivity. Uh, they're ranking faculty resources. Uh, they're ranking endowment per student. Uh, they're ranking alumni contributions. All of which, you know, are inputs have nothing to do with the actual out, out, outputs of the institution. You know, there are essentially two, two or three outputs that, that matter, uh, right? One is are students' learning, and that's probably the hardest to measure. The second is, well, what what are what are graduates? What are your former students actually making uh, in the uh, work? And the third. And, you know, uh, perhaps uh, harder uh, is, you know, are they happy? Are your graduates happy? Are they happy with the, with the experience? But none of the, uh, none of the, uh, the, the rankings uh, systems as they exist currently, currently measure that. So, in effect, uh, the, uh, the, the metric by which institutions and, and more importantly, the, the, board, the boards of trustees, the governors of these institutions that are trying to determine whether they're actually meeting uh, their, uh, their stated, stated missions. So these, the, the criteria that we're, that we're using, the yardstick, if you will, is flawed. Right. Uh, rankings is one. Another one, uh, which is another easy to measure uh, yardstick, uh, is research. Right. You know, where are we in terms of research dollars, research grants and so forth? And if we're up from last year, then we're, su- we're successful, if not. But again, really has nothing to do with any of the, 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 the outputs, the outcomes that I just that I just mentioned. A third one is real estate. Right. Are we putting up great new buildings? What does our architecture look like? There's a piece in the Chronicle this week uh, about uh, I think it's Syracuse. Um, uh, university that's, uh, of, you know, trying to you know I- innovate, uh, if you will, through interesting architecture. That's nice, but really has nothing to do with student outcomes. And the fourth one is is college sports, uh, athletics. You know, am I seeing my my, my team uh, performing on Saturdays? Um, so all those things again, easy to measure, easy for a trustee to say like, yeah, you know, our institution's in good shape, but really have no, having nothing to do with the things that actually matter, uh, meaning, uh, student, namely student student outcomes. So uh, you know, it 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 does it leads to um, uh, you know a kind of isomorphism, uh, which is you know, if you will, sort of the the major criticism I have in the book. I mean, I talk about the crisis of affordability, um, crisis of completion uh, in the book. um, But you know, uh, fundamentally, uh, it really all comes comes back to the fact uh, that institutions which really um, different institutions, uh, which, which should be serving, uh, you know, a, which, which do serve um, a great diversity of students. In fact, that's our number one strength uh, as a system. Uh, it's that we serve greater diversity of students from a socioeconomic standpoint, from a uh, racial diversity standpoint than any other uh, uh, country's higher education system uh, in, the, in the world. And yet, uh, so, so how is it, uh, how is it possible that every institution should essentially use the same yardstick uh, by which to to, to measure itself. So the four R's, not every institution uses every R, uh, certainly, but uh, most use most of them. uh, And in reality, uh, uh, doing a great disservice by encouraging isomorphism, which means that uh, uh, higher education institutions are converging on a singular model. Uh, And in fact, uh, we would be uh, much better served by a much greater diversity of, of models and of products. If you will, so you know the major product of higher education is the degree program. Uh, we've seen a, a huge increase in the growth of certificate uh, programs, but not one that's really uh, encouraged uh, or motivated by the system or uh, the rewards uh, uh, available to players in the system. So uh, you know uh, we we strongly believe uh, that the market is pushing in the direction of a uh, you know much greater panoply of uh, programs and products. Uh, likely uh, shorter and easier to complete uh, than a degree is while still yielding uh, uh, credentials uh, that uh, are are not only uh, sort of equally understood uh, by uh, the the sort of the the end consumer of those credentials, namely the employer, uh, but probably better understood because if you ask employers today, they really don't understand what they're getting uh, when they get uh, an employee with a degree. They're not. They're not understanding it at the level of the competency. They're understanding it that uh, this is something that took four years and is difficult to complete, and therefore the employee, the prospective employee, has the stick-to-itiveness that they need to complete. But it doesn't really say anything more than that about the competencies of the uh, of the uh, employees, hard, hard skills or soft skills. Uh, and so we we foresee a future uh, where uh, the degree is uh, unbundled. If you will, in the same way that uh, other uh, industries have seen their products on, on music uh, with the CD or the record album, if you're old enough to remember that um, uh, cable, uh, cable bundles in, in yeah. television. You don't you know, need to be uh, getting all 500 channels. You can choose the, you know, the 50 or, or, or a few that you uh, that you that you actually want to buy. Um, same in higher education a degree. Uh, if you will, is a large bundle that almost by historical accident has become the the uh, the currency uh, of the uh, of the labor market, uh, and uh, both of the major players in the labor market, employees and employers, would prefer a much finer grained uh, currency, uh, one that actually speaks uh, to the level of the competency, as opposed to one that's been uh, determined by uh, how how it is that our universities have evolved historically over the past few centuries. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think you I, I really like how sort of you, you talk about where this isomorphism where we're going. Everyone's trying to be either like this very elite sort of uh, want to be Harvard or maybe even if I can if I can maybe they want to be Ohio State University with this big football team and and really expensive tuition things like that. But that's not really the reality for most students. Most students are, I think you point out, are um, part-time, are adults, or older than the sort of uh, 18 to 22-year-old, which you described. You know, we've created these clinical playpins for uh, an 18 to 22-year-old, uh, and that's not really serving our resources or, or things that we're investing in. Yeah, no,
0: I mean, it's, it's understandable, right? Because the majority of faculty across all institutions, including the non-elite institutions, have actually attended, you know, top 200 universities, right? So the top 200 universities educate something like 75% of all tenured faculty across all institutions, including community colleges, including, you know, state university systems and so forth. So these are people who, uh, who, who know what excellence is because they had it when they themselves were an undergraduate or graduate student. And in a sense, the tragedy of what's happened in our higher education system is uh, all of these, uh, these, the, the, these these decision makers uh, across the system uh, trying to sort of recapture the excellence of their youth uh, rather than designing their institutions uh, in a way that uh, maximizes uh, student outcomes given the level of resources that they have.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, you know, what then what is sort of a model or what should we be looking for or what should – uh, or what could universities be doing? I think you uh, provide an example of uh, a university in uh, uh, Missouri, the um, technical uh, university. Or can you kind of describe uh, what that looks like, or some of those uh, characteristics?
0: Yeah, I mean that's an example of an institution that is, um, you know, created what we call a double double click degree, mm-hmm. uh, essentially. Which you know, uh, again, the degree is a fairly opaque. Um, uh, credentials, so far as the uh, as the as the employer <laughs> is concerned, uh, and the transcript uh, is really not used at all in the hiring process. And if you talk to employers, uh, the only ones who say they use it, they they, they use it almost as a lie detector uh, a test. Uh, where they're basically saying, you know, oh, you know, did you take this? What grade did you get, and so forth. And it, but they're not actually uh, looking at uh, the skills or competencies that uh, students purportedly gained uh, through their learning because it's just not available uh, to them. So the point of of that, uh, you know, I call that a a, a way station uh, on the uh, on the road to unbundling because uh, it, it is something that really any uh, institution can do. Uh, once they begin speaking the, le- the language of uh, of competencies, is to uh, you know take the transcript from a, an opaque, uh, fairly useless instrument uh, to one where uh, employers uh, and, and, and others who are interested can double click on uh, on courses or learning experiences and understand uh, what competencies a student who achieved uh, at this level in that learning experience should be able to exhibit. Uh, so that's a great uh, that's a great example. I mean, I think in terms of you know looking at the road the road forward. Uh, I mean, we're not the only ones looking at um, what I call just-in-time uh, providers. So these are the, you know, coding boot camps uh, and other uh, alternative uh, uh, players that uh, you know folks in the Department of Education are very enthusiastic about and trying to bring into the Title IV uh, universe through a demonstration program. they are going to be announcing uh, in the next uh, in the next few weeks. Uh, but you know, just-in-time uh, education uh, really, uh, I think, represents uh, the future. Uh, of, uh, of of higher education. If you think about what's happened in the software uh, industry uh, over the last uh, you know ten fifteen years, you know ten fifteen years ago, uh, companies sold enter- and bought uh, enterprise software, right? Which is a huge software package. Uh, you know a lot of which you, you never use, Pay a big price tag uh, for it. You buy it once, uh, and then you you know you pay annual maintenance uh, uh, for it. Um, and you know, if you look at your your own university, you'll you'll, you'll see that your uh, green screen SIS uh, system that you use was probably bought once, uh, you know, 20, 30 years ago, and it's you know impossible to rip it rip it out. So um, you know, fast forward to today, uh, we've replaced enterprise software with SaaS. Right? Enterprise software has been destroyed. SaaS is software that you don't buy; you rent, essentially, and you pay for what you need when you need it. So uh, that's, uh, that's 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 uh, that's that that's sort of how that's, that's evolved. So similarly, higher education today, uh, you know, the view is you 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 know you pay a lot of money to get your degree once, right? You do it, you know, typically you are supposed to do it between when you are eighteen and twenty four. Um, then you have your annual maintenance payments. The equivalent would be your you know alumni dues <laughs> or something, and you are done, right? You don't you don't you don't worry about it again. A SAS model uh, of higher education. Is you buy when you need what you need when you need it, right? So you might go to school for uh, three months, uh, learn some skills, uh, work, uh, and then uh, come back uh, and do another three month uh, experience, uh, a credential that again has meaning uh, in the workforce. Um, that's a SaaS model. You pay for what you need when you need it. The reason uh, we're not there yet uh, is that uh, we don't have the data uh, and the systems yet uh, to give students a roadmap as to what they need when they need it, right? Uh, but that's coming, uh, and that's really the, the punchline of the of the book, which is I talk about competency marketplaces uh, and uh, this you know revolution we're seeing in data uh, technology where. Uh, Algorithms are able to parse um, job descriptions and extract uh, the competencies uh, that are required for those jobs uh, with some level of confidence, and they're able to do the same for resumes uh, and transcripts. And in so doing, you can match candidates or students or graduates with uh, jobs, and that's what competency marketplaces are going to do. LinkedIn is an example of that. Um, We think that in higher education, e-portfolio companies like Portfolium are going to be successful uh, in uh, creating competency marketplaces, specifically purpose-built uh, at the university level, mm-hmm. where you're literally matching jobs and students on the basis of competencies. Which mm-hmm. is not to say that uh, students are going to be, um, you know, placed into jobs on a, the basis of an algorithm. Far from it. Uh, but think about what's happening today uh, in terms of how hiring uh, works. You know, today every job posting is is getting a hundred. And 50 to 250 uh, resumes and applications. Um, uh, companies, uh, including small companies, but certainly all midsize and large companies, use application tracking systems to screen those resumes. Humans don't look at all of those resumes. They run them through an ATS, and the ATS is filtering based on keyword. Uh, so uh, they're literally looking uh, at whether or not uh, there are some of the same words <laughs> in the resume uh, as uh, are in the job description, which uh, leads to a, a funny phenomenon called resume spam, uh, where uh, students are copying the job description in white font uh, behind their Ooh. behind their resume to get past the, uh, the ATS screen. So that's the filtering that we have today. It's crude, it doesn't work. And when companies are trying to decide which 10 or 20 students they want to, or candidates they want to interview, they're getting a uh, you know uh, you know probably half of them are false positives and there's a ton of false negatives that they're excluding uh, incorrectly. Uh, so what competency marketplaces will do uh, is they will make that filtering or screening uh, mechanism a lot more accurate uh, on the basis of competency. So if you're interviewing interviewing 20 people, 20 candidates, uh, you're not going to have uh, hopefully any uh, false uh, false negatives, and and uh, nor will. You know, nor will you have false positives, at least on the basis of competencies. Now, then you you interview those the, those candidates and you determine which of which of them is the best fit for you in terms of culture and behavior and you know uh, so forth. Um, so it, it's it's going to uh, improve fit uh, and uh, reduce uh, reduce the the likelihood of bad of bad hires. But fundamentally, for higher education, what it means is that students are going to finally have a GPS. Right, they're going to have a GPS for their uh, education and career, uh, their human capital uh, development. And they're going to know that if I want to do, if I want to become an environmental engineer, that uh, the competencies required to be an environmental engineer are listed here, and there are, there are many of them. And I don't just mean sort of hard skills. I mean everything from sort of core cognitive skills, executive function skills, things that make you a successful professional communication skills, problem solving skills, and so forth. All of this can be, um, it, it's data, um, and it's 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 uh, it's 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 uh, difficult, complex data. Uh, but it's 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 the kind of things that people are working through in sort of big data and, and algorithms and so forth. Uh, so uh, we will um, uh, we will have an opportunity. Students will have the opportunity to determine uh, what the competencies uh, required for that uh, that career are, and uh, they'll be able to determine okay, well, what's the best path for me to get from where I am today to where I need to be. And the answer is probably not going to be a, a four-year degree uh, for many of them. It's going to be a series of short courses, assessments, maybe a massive open online course, uh, project work, and so forth. And then the competency marketplace will stamp stamp me uh, as um, you know qualified for the job to the point that I at least make it past the uh, ATS uh, filter, and uh, and uh, will will be uh, you know considered by a human being <laughs> right. for the uh, for the for the position.
1: If I could you jump back to uh, the point you just mentioned, you mentioned MOOCs. Uh, how much of a factor do those play into this idea of uh, disruption, uh, if you could? Uh,
0: none. In fact, it's, it's the opposite. It's been a distraction, and institutions that have actually focused on MOOCs and deployed resources against them have found themselves slipping further behind uh, from an innovation uh, standpoint. Uh, I think we were the first public skeptic uh, of MOOCs we came out in February of 2012 and uh, said that we've seen this movie before we know how it ends and uh, there's no model here uh, for scaling um and uh we then went on to compare MOOCs uh to the Spice Girls <laughs> saying that uh you know while they were viewed as revolutionary and you know I mean think back 3 years ago the New York Times wrote I think at the end of uh, 2012 that uh this is the biggest higher education um uh, you know, story of the decade, and they declared 2012 to be the year of the MOOC. Uh-huh. So, um, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of flash and viewed as sort of revolutionary, but in fact, uh, you know, just more of the same. Uh, what came before, right? So, the Spice Girls, for those of you old enough to remember, <laughs> remember the Spice Girls—they were viewed the same way, um, revolutionary and so forth. But actually, it was just a girl's version of a, a girl version of a boy band. In fact, that's how they were put together. But it was a bunch of managers in London in the mid nineties who put out an ad saying, we're going to create a girl version of NSYNC or the Backstreet Boys. And that's sort of what, what, uh, what the Spice Girls were. And yet they were still important. So in the late nineties in the UK, the Spice Girls did represent something important. It represented sort of this era of cool Britannia and Tony Blair. And, you know, the end of two decades of Tory rule and so forth. And I I was there at the time and it was a pretty cool feeling in the same way. MOOCs represent something important. They represent the, the moment that online uh, learning uh, became uh, relevant and important for all of higher education, not just sort of a a niche that we would associate with distance education or uh, correspondence education uh, or continuing education uh, or for-profit education, but something that every uh, university, no matter how elite, needed to have a strategy around. And if you didn't have one, uh, you could potentially be fired like the chancellor of UVA uh, almost was. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think that's the importance of of, uh, of MOOCs. All of the MOOC companies have moved on to different models at this point. They'll tell you that they're not MOOC companies. They're more sort of just-in-time uh, providers trying to create alternative credentials uh, that have meaning. That's always been our view, is that uh, what has value uh, in the market is not content uh, or courses, but credentials uh, that have value uh, and uh, are understood uh, by employers uh, in the uh, in the marketplace. So that's what companies like Coursera and Udacity are trying to create. I think it's hard to try to uh, create a credential from scratch. It's um, uh, very difficult. I think that uh, at the end of the day, you need to have employer uh, engagement uh, in the uh, in, in, in the educational program in order to achieve placement if you're trying to offer some kind of uh, alternative uh, credential. And that's not something that uh, Udacity or Coursera uh, currently, uh, currently does. And so, uh, you know, I, I, um, uh, I, I don't think it's, it's, it's really part of the um, sort of innovation or disruption narrative that's happening in higher education. Uh, as I said before, I think that there's much more disruption coming uh, on, the, uh, on the data uh, side, right? I mean, so we just saw what uh, the Department of Education's data release and tying federal financial aid data to IRS data, uh, and the potential that that, uh, that, that it's, it's going to have a huge change in terms of how we think about universities, in terms of the ranking systems. I don't see how you can be a responsible ranking system and not incorporate that data, that income data that the, the government has now made uh, available. Flawed though it, it may be, uh, it's still much better than what we had, uh, what we had uh, before. Um, and so it, it's going to it's going to turn, um, you know, what was essentially uh, a sort of reputation based uh, economy in higher education, uh, where people made decisions on what college to attend and what programs to study on the basis, not of, of real data, but on the basis of reputations, to one, uh, decisions that are, that are based on real data. And then I think in a few years, as I said before, we're going to see uh, that same transition uh, on the sort of you know, post, post-college side when you're actually looking for work. Uh, today, uh, students are choosing employers primarily on the basis of reputation, not on the basis of any data. And employers are selecting students uh, in the same way, uh, and uh, we're going to have real data. Uh, the data is there; it just needs to be sort of parsed and matched. Uh, and um, it, it's going to have a huge change on uh, how uh, colleges and universities operate, uh, and on the programs and products that they offer.
1: Okay. Well, that yeah, that's I think that all certainly uh, makes sense. If we could, maybe I can ask you about um, sort of uh, private or, or for-profit. Uh, actors in this space. Um, I, th- I think you kind of uh, give a good example of Forbes sort of um, giving it, uh, licensing its name out to uh, a for profit uh, university and then sort of creating this Forbes University as sort of an example of something that could be done. Um, so, so, what's your sense on the um, for profit or, or private side?
0: Yeah, no, so I think there, there there are two things bound up in what you just said. I think you know for profit higher education has a bad name at this point um, because I think a lot of um a lot of the for profit universities took advantage of uh, what was a, a very fast growing market and offered programs that uh, cost too much um relative to the quality they were providing. I think that in in, in almost every case the quality of what they were providing was still superior to what, say, for example, most community colleges were offering. The problem was not a quality issue, it was a pricing issue because they were charging 3, 4, 5x what the community colleges uh, charged uh, to do it and spending much of that uh, on marketing and enrollment. Uh, So that's sort of where they ran into into trouble. Having said that, uh, I talk in the book, I I have a chapter called A Tale of Two Cities, uh, where uh, I talk about sort of the the challenges that these for-profit universities face relative to the incredible innovation we're seeing, amongst private companies uh, in higher education. And and most of these companies um, are, um, you know, what I call service providers, companies that partner with universities to help them do things they need to do but aren't perfectly good at doing or don't want to do. So, for example, helping the university go online, recruiting international uh, students, um, uh, uh, trying to uh, uh, relocate uh, students who have dropped out and bring them back uh, to the university, help them complete uh, degree programs disaggregating your existing uh, IT degree offerings into more consumable boot camp-like programs and and credentials. These are things that universities aren't going to do themselves and certainly aren't going to do themselves at scale. They can uh, partner uh, with uh, market-driven student-centric companies to to, to do. Uh, And, you know, I think that in time... The dynamism of these, uh, you know, fast-growing companies uh, will uh, soon outshine uh, the, uh, the the sort of lost luster uh, of these uh, these large for-profit universities, which are just getting smaller uh, year year after year. At this point, the value propositions of most of these universities are not particularly uh, attractive uh, by and large. As I said, primarily because it's a pricing a pricing issue. Um, the second part of what you would what you were asking was sort of the, the power of brands, um, and you know I think that in, in higher education, uh, going forward, where we're going to see growth is really on both ends uh, of the of the market. What I would call discount um, discount value propositions, and then premium value propositions. And it's the same thing we're seeing in other sectors too, in the restaurant sector, in the retail sector. Uh, we're seeing uh, you know uh, you know for example Chipotle or Shake Shack. Uh, thriving because they they know what they do, they do it at expense relatively inexpensively uh, it 's a quality product for the, 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 for, for, that, for that level of uh, of expense uh, and uh, you know uh, consumers are flocking uh, to them likewise premium dining, fine dining you know never been never been in better shape it 's the middle it 's the restaurants in the middle, right the TGR Fridays, the Chili's, and so forth where they 're shrinking uh, the olive gardens, the red lobsters. Uh, no one wants to eat there, right? If you will, they're poor facsimiles of a fine dining experience. They're not offering the quality of, you know, for a sit down, uh, sit down meal. Although, you know, the breadsticks might be good. So, um, same in same in retail, right? Dollar stores thriving, Nordstrom's thriving, but you know, J.C. Penny and Sears and so forth you're really suffering. So, we're having a seeing a hollowing out uh, of the market. I think we're going to see the same thing in higher education, where universities will need to decide what they want to be. Do they, are they are they a discounter? or are they a premium provider? And if you're a premium provider, you really need to make sure that you're sort of checking all the boxes in terms of premium. Do you have a premium brand, right? Are you providing premium content and services? And are you helping the student get the job, right? So it's hard to, um, hard to say you're a premium provider if your students aren't getting the jobs they want uh, at, the, at the end of the road. I think those are the three elements of a premium provider. I haven't met a university that hasn't said they're a premium provider, but I also haven't met one that has been able to tell me credibly they're doing. They have all three. They can check all three of those boxes uh, at this point. So I think the market will see through many of those institutions, and they really, you know, will will be sort of in that middle of the of the market, which will be which will be shrinking. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you can be a discount institution, which is to say you're offering the degree uh, for uh, as inexpensively as, as you can, kind of an everyday low pricing uh, type type model. Uh, and in order to do that, uh, you know, it, it, it's going to have to be a, um, online or at least blended, um, and likely a competency-based, uh, delivery, uh, to do that. And there's going to be huge demand for that. I've uh, no doubt about it, but not a lot of traditional universities are particularly excited about going down that road again, because of the isomorphism, uh, that so infects higher education. Everyone knows excellence and they, you know, want to, uh, aspire uh, to that excellence. So everyone is going to aim to be a premium institution, but many of them
1: uh, won't succeed. Right. So that, I mean, that's sort of gets into this idea of a, of a two-tiered system, essentially, what you're talking about. And I think you describe sort of these elite institutions uh, as almost like a, like a debutante uh, kind of uh, uh, analogy that you use. Can you kind of talk about that? And, you know, we're going to eventually say, oh, that's kind of quaint what you're doing there, but the rest of us have have moved on,
0: essentially. Yeah. No, I think that's. I think that's right. I mean, so so today, when you when you uh, when when you hear that a friend's son or da- a daughter uh, has uh, come out as a debutante, I think we all react like, oh, that that, yeah, that is quaint. You know, that's you know, kind of old fashioned. Did you really have to do that? That sounds expensive, and so forth. Maybe you did that as a you know sort of signal of your social status, and so forth. Um, once we've once we've gone through unbundling, and once students sort of have the GPS they need to make the right decisions and buy what they want when they need, when they need, or buy what they need when they need it uh, in terms of their post-secondary education. Uh, I think that for many, it will increasingly look sort of quaint and unnecessary um, to sort of, you know, have that, uh, have that experience. Having said that, I have no doubt that, you know, lead in top, you know, 50 institutions will continue to have lines out the door for a long, long time uh, just because of the, um, uh, of, of the, of the rich uh, immersive, uh, networking uh, benefits uh, of an elite education but again i don't want to i don 't want to spend too much time talking about the ivy league because it 's such a small part of the system from a percentage standpoint we 're talking about you know sort of less than five percent of the uh, of the market we 're much more focused on the ninety five percent and I think that for the ninety five percent who aren 't attending elite institutions, it really will seem like a debutante um, uh, you know to 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 go and earn a degree from a non elite institution why would you why would you why would you do that so um, you know, I, I think we are heading towards a, a two-tier system—a very small, you know, country club-ish, uh, elite, immersive um, uh, experience, um, the college ideal, uh, if you will, uh, for uh, you know the the, uh, the 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 wealthiest and are certainly the, the, the top the top students, and then those who aren't able to um, uh, uh, you know achieve at that level. Uh, They will uh, have a much more efficient uh, system, one that doesn't emulate uh, to be something that it's not, uh, which is what we have today, and that I think is uh, one major reason why uh, uh, almost 46% of students who start uh, degree programs don't complete them. Uh, The point is to have uh, less expensive uh, programs with much higher completion rates and um, that uh, yield credentials that have greater meaning uh, to employers and therefore will uh, accrue greater value uh, to uh, to students, so that's um, that that's sort of where I think we're heading, and I think that that sort of latter category is likely to be a combination of online and blended uh, delivery. Um, and uh, you know, it, 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 to those of us who had the benefit of an elite university experience, it sounds you know sad and unequal and so forth. But the fact of the matter is, the system we have now is is sad and unequal because students are not, uh, the students are not completing uh, their degree programs. They're, they're leaving with tens of thousands of dollars in debt, often without uh, uh, any uh, credential uh, of value. Uh, and there's nothing sadder than that. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think we should aim uh, to have a system that uh, serves students uh, where they are um, and uh, sort of um, uh, is, is designed uh, to uh, deliver uh, credentials of value um, that uh, they'll be able that uh, they can they can complete uh, and derive value uh, derive value from as opposed to trying to complete the credentials uh, that uh, you know the wealthy um uh, uh designed uh, you know 150 years ago um the system is not serving this you know broad diverse population particularly well
1: okay yeah fantastic well i think we're kind of coming up on the end um of the interview but uh, uh, maybe one one or more two more questions if you could, um, maybe we can put these together. What are some of the, I think, biggest sort of uh, hurdles that uh, either you sort of people have talked about when they have read your book and, and then maybe saw you later or um, that you even sort of foresaw when you were writing the book? And then just uh, any final word, last word for, uh, for the audience that uh, will hopefully go and check this out.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I think, you know, when I when I talk with um, sort of policymakers and so forth, uh, a lot of people in traditional higher ed just don't believe this. They don't believe that uh, technology is going to have the kind of changes that, um, you know, I'm talking about on higher education because it's always been thus, right? It's all Our system of higher education has not really changed that much in the past hundred years ever since we adopted the Carnegie unit. It really hasn't changed very much at all. Um, now we, we serve many more students and a much greater diversity of students and our completion rates are lower and, and so forth, but the way in which we deliver higher education hasn't hasn't changed, uh, particularly. And, and so, uh, you know, I, I think it, it's just a, a um, you know, there, there, it's, it's a bit of a silo uh, thinking. You're, uh, people who have experience in other industries um, and who have seen how those industries have changed and been, been changed by technology, I think are better able to conceive of what higher education is going to look like 10, 20 years from now after technology has changed it. Uh, It hasn't changed yet. Uh, It's not going to change it through massive open online courses. Uh, The the more appropriate uh, analogy uh, is um, through through, sort of Uber, right? How Uber has sort of changed the the, the taxi and limousine uh, business by sort of becoming an intermediary and taking control of the sort of overall customer uh, experience and redirecting resources uh, accordingly, that hasn't happened in higher education yet. But as these competency marketplaces evolve, that's exactly what they're going to they're going to do. They're going to uh, you know uh, become the the, the, uh, the GPS. Students will rely on uh, the information they provide. Employers will rely on information they provide, uh, and uh, it's going to reorder the supply chain uh, on the education and training side, which is you know, effectively the $500 billion spent today on colleges and
1: universities. Okay, fantastic. Well, uh, we always have one final question on, on the NewBooks Network. What are you working on next? I know this is pretty recent for you, but uh, any other projects that you have?
0: Yeah, no, I mean, we're spending a lot of time at university ventures uh, at the intersection of higher education and the workforce. Really fascinated by the emergence of um, dozens of you know intermediaries that are trying to bridge the gap between what colleges and universities deliver today, and what employers are are looking for, and there are a range of models, uh, companies that are you know if you will charging the consumer, companies that are charging um, the uh, companies that are, that are that are charging the employer, and companies that are charging universities, and then a range of uh, services ranging from. Uh, training to training plus placement or matching to matching uh, services and and uh, some really interesting uh, new businesses that uh, we are uh, investing in that are trying to close the close the gap uh, that exists uh, that exists uh, today. Um, so um, you know, from a writing standpoint, uh, not not so much, but from a uh, investing standpoint, we're trying to um, select and, and pick what I think will be fast-growing companies that are going to help uh, further shrink uh, the uh, the gap uh, between higher education and uh, the labor market. Okay.
1: Well, fantastic. And uh, to all my audience out there, uh, I want you to go check out College Disrupted, the great unbundling of higher education. And we have the author here, uh, Ryan Craig, Managing Director of University Ventures. And uh, Ryan, thank you very much for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you very much. And everyone out there, hope you learned something. Mm-hmm. plus.